4: Good evening. I'm Scott Wapner. On day 144 of the coronavirus crisis tonight, an iconic theme park takes a big leap towards reopening.
5: Florida's famous amusement parks are on a path forward.
2: Right now, Universal is presenting its plan to the Economic Recovery Task Force.
5: Tonight, we'll hear from a key link in the chain on whether they'll be allowed to reopen. Plus...
6: My guess is that when we start,
5: we will limit the number of people who can go onto a ship. A major cruise line CEO on what he's doing to make sure everything's ship when the passengers return. And a Wisconsin County Health Department's battle with an Amazon warehouse. Let us in, or we'll shut it down. This CNBC special report begins right now. Here's Scott Wapner...
4: And it's good to have you with us on this Thursday night. We start this evening with the growing drumbeat to reopen. Just hours ago, a county task force in Orange County, Florida, voting to approve Universal Orlando's reopening plan. Jerry Demings is the mayor of Orange County, the creator of the Economic Recovery Task Force that approved that plan today. And he is with us live. Mr. Mayor, good evening to you. Thank you for being with us.
7: Good evening. I'm honored to be on the show with you tonight. So
4: the task force has approved Universal's plan. You ultimately have to sign off on it, will you?
7: Uh, I will sign off on it. Uh, In terms of process here within the state of Florida, the governor has directed that any of our large theme parks have to get approval of the county mayor, if there's a county mayor, the city mayor, within their jurisdiction prior to reopening. And so earlier today, the economic task force here within Orange County met and uh, made a recommendation to me to approve the reopening plan I've reviewed it and in the morning I will uh, submit a transmittal to the governor uh, supporting the reopening of Universal Studios here within our area
4: what requirements specifically will you ask uh, of the theme park the theme parks
7: have been very cooperative uh, primarily we are after ensuring that they are complying with the CDC guidelines. And in general terms, that means that we are looking that they have appropriate screening of both their guests and employees in place, that they have appropriate uh, sanitary measures in place, and that they have appropriate social distancing in place. All of the theme parks here within the area have committed uh, to following the process, submitting a plan, and then getting approval from both myself and the governor here in the state of Florida.
4: They'll begin with employees only, then limited capacity. Can you give us an idea of what kind of numbers we may be looking at when the theme park does reopen to visitors?
7: What uh, Universal presented today was a phased reopening. For example, on June the 1st is the day that they uh, say that they will reopen. But what that means is that initially uh, they will reopen to only their uh, team members who will be Allowed into the parks, and it'll be something like a dress rehearsal for them. Uh, and they will do that for a day or two, and then they will move to the annual pass holders, and uh, they will hold that for a day or two. And then perhaps around June the 5th is the date that they said to me that they're primarily looking at reopening to the general public. When that reopening occurs, it will be a significantly reduced uh, number of uh, Guests that will be attending their park.
4: What would happen if the state of Florida is still in its phase one, which mandated that theme parks were closed? If this is technically a phase two uh, open, how would that work? Uh, We are very
7: fortunate here in the metropolitan Orlando area because our uh, positivity rate of COVID virus cases is very low. In fact, we have about 2.9% of uh, all of the cases that have been tested in our county that have turned out to be positive. We've done some approximately 60,000 cases uh, or test uh, collections here within the county itself. And so that is something that drives our our decision-making that uh, we still want to see these uh, measures in place to make certain that the virus does not spread within our community. And so I believe that the governor is supportive of that effort. So it's the right balance at the right time. Uh, What uh, the guests will likely see is that there will be a mandate that uh, the employees will be wearing masks uh, as well as the guests that will be entering the park. And there will be really a number of touchless experiences there where they'll be using mobile apps so that individuals can make their appointments for rides without waiting in long lines. There'll be virtual lines. And then they'll be uh, they'll pay through the mobile apps and uh, really handle very little cash. There will be cleaning stations throughout ambassadors located throughout the park itself that will be continuously wiping down those high traffic areas where there's a significant touch possibilities there.
4: Best we know, Disney did not present its plan today. Do, Do you know when you expect to hear from the Disney folks?
7: Disney has uh, given an indication that next week uh, they will submit their plans. And once they do, then we will schedule that for a full uh, briefing before our economic recovery task force as well. So at this point, it's an undefined uh, time or date. But we do look forward to seeing that sometime next week.
4: Give you a quick impact uh, before I leave you. Um, the economic impact of theme parks in, in your county uh, down in Florida is what? I know it's a large number, but what is it? We're talking about a
7: multi-billion dollar impact uh, on our community with the closing of the theme parks. Uh, After all, Disney is the largest single site employer in North America with 77,000 employees. So when they shut down back in March, mid-March, that was significant to helping to stop the spread of the virus in our community. The other theme parks followed suit shortly thereafter. And uh, that is one of the reasons why we have a low rate of of positive cases here within our community
4: big step in the path forward mr mayor i appreciate your time this evening good luck to you folks down there absolutely all right that's jerry demings he of course the mayor of orange county florida you should also know that universal is owned by comcast which is our parent company joined now by dr scott gottlieb he's the former head of the fda a cnbc contributor dr gottlieb this is a significant move uh, if theme parks can reopen in florida how are you thinking about that tonight
8: well, there's a lot of pressure by the state to get these parks reopened so this is really being led by the state there's ways you can uh, reduce risk in these parks the is done primarily outside they have to think about cleaning i've talked to a number of these um, these companies that run these parks and i think there's things they can do including trying to um, screen their own employees better and test their own employees ultimately the risk is going to turn on what the prevalence is of the infection in the population and the risk isn't necessarily to florida per se They're bringing together large groups of people from out of state, congregating them, and then they're dispersing. So the risk is just going to be generally to the nation and how high the prevalence is. We see the prevalence coming down, so the risk is being reduced. And I think activities done primarily outside, like many of these parks are, are lower-risk activities. I think the hot, humid weather down in Florida does contribute to um, declines in spread. So there are things that mitigate the potential for spread here. But you know, as we reopen these activities, there's going to be some risk and there's going to be some additional spread as a consequence. The parks also have the capacity to, uh, you know, clean shared surfaces, use UV light on rides, things like that, things that can reduce spread. And I know they're thinking about all those technologies. Cases are
4: still on the rise, especially throughout parts of the South. How concerning is that as we are
8: reopening more states? Well, I think what's concerning is looking at hospitalization. So hospitalizations were coming down for two solid weeks. And now when you look at the data over the last week, you see At best, it's flattened out, but there might be a slight uptick. And you do see certain states where you see a rise in hospitalizations, Alabama, North Carolina, our two states, uh, Mississippi, um, shows an increase. as an increase in cases in Texas. Georgia showed an increase in the last couple of days. We expected cases to go up as a consequence of a relaxation of the, the social distancing and the mitigation steps we took. I think we need to look at this data very closely and make sure these increases don't continue in that direction. But we expected some increase, so this isn't surprising. And this was about the time that you'd start to see it. We really need to be focused on its hospitalizations. Unfortunately, only about 60% of states report that data, so not all states report it. And not all states report it reliably. So we don't have great metrics all around the country.
4: To be clear, you are going to get more cases as you get more testing. And in fact, we are getting a lot more testing.
8: Yeah, you're going to get more cases as you get more testing. The positivity rate's coming down. So that's all reassuring. Um, But looking at hospitalizations, which are a more objective measure, so hospitalizations aren't impacted by how much you're testing, as your testing goes up, you're going to capture more cases. But the hospitalization should be a relatively fixed proportion of the total cases that get hospitalized. Now there's a delay in time to hospitalization of about eight days, so you have to wait to see what the impact of the increased um, social activity is. So you have to wait about two weeks, and that's why a lot of the reopening plans are staged in two-week intervals, because you wait about two weeks and you see, if you see an increased rate of hospitalizations, that's an indication that you know, the relaxation and mitigation is having an impact on increasing spread of the disease. I think one of the questions we're going to grapple with is how much is the summer going to be a backstop? Um, we've talked about this before, but we're reopening against the backdrop of the summer, so we caught a break in that regard. Um, there's a real debate on how much of a seasonal effect you're going to get here, but we might be seeing the signs of a seasonal effect already as we see rates come down in the south and states like Florida. Um, That may be part of what's going on here. You
4: feeling pretty good about where we are right now, considering
8: all 50 states are open, at
4: least in some capacity?
8: I'm feeling good for the most part. The states are taking a responsible staged approach. Most of the states, or many of the states, particularly here in the Northeast, um, and we're seeing rates come down. We're seeing hospitalizations flatten out. I mean, the last week we've seen this small bump up nationally, so that is concerning, I think the risk is going to be to the fall. I'm hopeful that we continue to see the rates of spread come down in the summer. We have a seasonal effect here. And the risk is really to the fall. When you look at the overall data, the population really hasn't been exposed to COVID. So there's now prevalence data internationally. I posted this on Twitter tonight. You look at um, state countries like Sweden, um, Spain, France, only about 5% of the populations have been exposed. I think nationally in the U.S. it will also be about 5%. When you look at certain cities, outbreak cities, Um, Paris and Wuhan are 10%. Milan, Barcelona, Stockholm, about 7%. You look at there was a seroprevalence study in Boise, Idaho, 1.8%. So the population remains vulnerable, and we could have a second wave in the fall if we're not careful coming off this summer. But I'm hopeful that the reopening will be successful um, as we continue into the summer months, and then the risk is really to the fall. Dr. Gottlieb, you'll stay with me.
4: Uh, we're going to talk about another big industry down in the state of Florida. Cruise Lines, the CEO of Royal Caribbean, was on CNBC today. Our Seema Modi has the details of his path forward. Seema?
2: Scott, Cruise Lines are known for packing passengers on board, historically running at 100% occupancy. But in the new world of social distancing, Royal Caribbean CEO Richard Fain tells me he expects fewer people on his ships.
6: My guess is that when we start, we will limit uh, the number of people who can go on to a ship, just as my neighborhood restaurants are beginning to open up. But by and they how will much? Start... Is
2: it 60 percent, 50 percent?
6: Yes, I wish I knew. That's the kind of question that we're asking ourselves right now.
2: Royal Caribbean boasts the largest cruise ship in the world, the Symphony of the Seas. It holds over 6,000 passengers. Fain says the size of the ships gives Royal an advantage.
6: Actually, that makes social distancing easier because we can spread people out. There's actually more room per person. So that actually makes it easier.
2: Now, before sailings resume, the cruise lines have a challenging task of repatriating thousands of crew members still stuck at sea.
6: We've already managed to get a large percentage home. Um, we've taken the extra step of coordinating to bring a lot of crew members from all over the fleet to assemble them on individual ships. And then we're using those ships to transport them home. It's frankly, it's a difficult thing to do. It's very complicated. It's also very expensive.
2: Now, getting these crew members home will likely play a crucial role in the CDC, giving the cruise lines the green light to ultimately return to sea. Scott.
4: All right, Seema, thank you. Seema Modi reporting for us tonight. Dr. Gottlieb, I turn back to you from theme parks to cruising. What are what are your thoughts this evening as we discuss the future of the cruise industry?
8: Well, look, people want to return to the things that give them a sense of normalcy and the ability to engage in leisure activity safely is part of what uh, gives us a sense of normalcy about our lives. We're going to go back to doing the things that we enjoyed eventually. We're going to have to do them differently, and I think the industry's realized that. I'm part of a group providing public health advice to the cruise, cruise industry, or parts of it, and I've been uh, engaged with Norwegian Cruise Lines, giving them some advice. I think there's things that you, they can do to dramatically improve safety on those ships, but getting back to what we said about the... Um, theme parks it's going to turn on what the prevalence is of the of the infection in the population and what the fall looks like are we going to have sporadic outbreaks that we can contain and we're going to know where they are because we have good screening in place are we going to have another national epidemic i'm hopeful that going into the fall we're going to have much better screening in place and we'll be able to know where the virus is and contain those outbreaks in cities and maybe even in states um, and not have a national epidemic and so the risk won't be so pervasive and so we can go about some of these activities that we enjoyed. but it's really going to turn on what the prevalence is um, you think of a cruise ship there's things you can do with UV light and disinfectants you can test the crew there's things you can do with the crew to improve safety you can also do much more aggressive screening of the passengers getting on those ships so it's a controlled environment um, but you know there's still going to be risk in all these activities
4: one of those activities uh, is a camp uh, we're thinking about that for our children Uh, This summer, they're hopeful of of going. I want to read you something Governor Cuomo said today. Get your reaction to it until we know what's going on with kids in this syndrome. Talked a lot about, of course, this uh, this uh, syndrome that has uh, stricken many children uh, and how widespread it is. I wouldn't send my kids to day camp. Your reaction to that tonight?
8: Well, look, I think a lot of these camps were headed towards opening. Um, and then when this news came out about this syndrome, it really changed the calculus, people's perception of what the risk was to children. We, we still don't understand what that risk is. We don't know how many kids are getting infected. But that's what I think forced a lot of the camps to be closed. Um, I'm not sending my kids to day camp this summer. You know, we're going we're gonna to make mommy camp at home. Um, so I think there still is risk to children, and I want to understand that better. And I want to understand how many kids are getting infected with this.
4: I want to turn to another issue, and then I'll come back to you, Dr. Gottlieb. Ricky Sandler of Eminence Capital its a large investment firm. He was on CNBC earlier today talking about herd immunity. Doctor, I want you to listen to what Ricky Sandler told our David Faber. We can talk about it on the other side. Well, I, I respect the public health experts and everything they say about herd immunity or putting people uh, uh, to, to actually get the virus, but I would, I would ask those public health experts, what would they say to the 24-year-old girl who says, I want to go to the concert because I want to go to dinner with my grandmother every Sunday night, and, and I don't want to do so without trepidation, and I don't want to do so having to test every single week. What, what about her rights? So we all who are healthy believe like we don't have a particularly large chance of dying this year, and getting COVID does not materially change those probabilities. All right, Dr. Gottlieb, how do you address Ricky Sandler's point tonight?
8: Well, look, we're a long way to herd immunity um, in this country, and there's going to be a lot of death and disease uh, if we're going to get to herd immunity. Uh, You look at the seroprevalence studies, as I said at the outset, about 5% of the population has probably been exposed to this, maybe 20% in outbreak cities like New York at the very high end, 10% in Wuhan and Paris. And you look at all the death and disease that's accrued just with those small numbers, relatively small numbers of people infected, if we just let this run rampant across the population, um, we're going to have a lot of death and disease and, and need to be prepared for that. And I don't think the American people are.
4: Because there, there, there is a growing voice out there that says, why not just open up the economy, protect the most vulnerable, and let people make their own decisions on what they're willing to do?
8: Well, look, I don't think it's that easy. You can't just tell people above a certain age or with comorbidities that they, they have to stay home and everyone else can go out. When you start uh, accruing, the number of people who have comorbidities that make them susceptible to this, it's a very large number of Americans, people who have diabetes, heart disease, pulmonary disease. When you start adding up those numbers, it's a lot of people. And so I don't think it's that simple. You look at Sweden, everyone says Sweden's doing this right. They're a long way from herd immunity, and they have the highest death rate per capita in Europe right now.
4: I want to address one more thing. Uh, The Texas Governor uh, Abbott today, uh, ending the 14-day quarantine for visitors to that state, the state of Texas, uh, from other states, including New York and New Jersey. I'm curious to your
8: thoughts. Do you think that makes sense? Well, I think it does make sense at this point. The prevalence is going down nationally. I think one of the things that, that's an indication of it is what's going to happen in the fall when you have some states and cities that still are going to have uh, aggressive measures in place um, in the tri-state area, for example, and other states that don't, and those states don't have outbreaks. Are you going to start to see intra, um, re- intra-country restrictions on travel, Um, people getting screened when they come off planes from certain airports. I think you're likely to see some of that behavior between states. We already saw it a little bit during this go-around. I think it's likely to happen in the fall.
4: Another interesting story tonight. Dr. Gottlieb, will come back to you in a moment again. And Amazon under fire tonight as one county health department in Wisconsin accused the retail giant of not allowing them access to a facility after dozens came down with the virus. Our Deirdre Bosa following that story this evening. She joins us live from out on the West Coast. Deirdre.
3: Hey, Scott. So Amazon doesn't actually disclose or release its infection data, but unofficial tallies put the total number of cases at warehouses at about 900. Meanwhile, lawmakers and public health authorities, they're requesting more information about cases and conditions from Amazon. So right now, this is all playing out in Kenosha, Wisconsin, where health officials say that Amazon is not cooperating with them to track cases at its campus there. Local reports put the number of COVID cases at the Amazon facility at more than 30. And they say that Health officials are considering attempting to actually shut down the campus, and that would be among the most extreme action that authorities have taken against the company on workplace concerns. Now, Amazon would not confirm the number of cases to us and said that it, quote, welcome to visit from the Kenosha County Health Department over the last few months. though, Scott, labor unrest has been rising among Not only the company's warehouse workers, but it's also reaching its white-collar employees. They're all demanding more protection amid the pandemic. And calls from lawmakers are rising for more transparency. In mid-May, a group of 13 attorneys general called on the company to disclose more infection data. Finally, Scott, I should note, though, that Amazon's biggest rival in the retail space, that's Walmart, does not disclose its own data about coronavirus cases. Amazon, though happens to be big tech, and we know that this is a sector that is getting close scrutiny from lawmakers. Back to you.
4: Deirdre, appreciate it. Bosa reporting for us tonight. Okay, Dr. Gottlieb, you're, you're a former public health official. Do health officials need more access into these warehouses, and should these companies be more transparent about the number of cases they're seeing?
8: Well, look, they're going to demand it uh, because a lot of these facilities where you have at-risk employees working in close contact with each other, with, in many cases without protective equipment, Those become the focal points for outbreaks within communities. So public health officials are going to start demanding this. And businesses need to think about how they do contact tracing in the workplace and how they prevent outbreaks. They're not going to be able to prevent a single case from getting introduced into the work site. What they can prevent in the work site, if they have good oversight, is an outbreak in the work site. What they're trying to do is reduce the the likelihood that a single introduction is going to lead to an outbreak of more than and pick your number, three cases, four cases, by a certain percent. And they're able to do that. You can't actually model that and figure out how much risk reduction you can get from different measures you can take, including potentially testing employees on a regular basis.
4: Our uh, Twitter questions are backed by popular demand, uh, Dr. Gottlieb. I'm going to run through a few uh, for you again this evening. Morris Franco wanting to know, is there an issue with distancing in swimming pools? He's clearly thinking about the Memorial Day weekend, as all of us are.
8: Lower risk. This is a respiratory pathogen. It's not going to be spread through swimming pools like some other pathogens are. have another question. Could we
4: please get Dr. Gottlieb's thoughts on transmission on various surfaces, uh, such as glass, touchscreens, metal, wooden door handles, knobs, etc.?
8: The CDC came out and said that they think more of the, a lot of the um, spread is through respiratory pathog- pathogens and um, sustained exposure to people who are infected, less on surface spread. I think there's still a risk to surface spread, Different surfaces have different risks. So cardboard, um, certain metals are lower risk than others. Glass, lower risk than, than metal. Copper is the lowest risk of the metals. And so I think it's still prudent to try to clean shared surfaces. But the CDC has said that they think that that's much less of a risk than first perceived during this outbreak.
4: Final question for you tonight from Nick Spaulding. Is it necessary to wear masks outdoors? We've been talking, Dr. Gottlieb, obviously, about a lot of outdoor activities. Says he's asking for joggers and walkers and those screaming at both. To wear masks
8: well look it's, it's become part of social etiquette too so we need to factor that in outdoor activity is lower risk so i think as, as as the summer starts i think we should try to move as much activity outdoors as possible you know if you're in a, a circle of people that you trust people are going to make decisions not to wear masks in those settings i think generally we should be trying to wear masks out at least as we start to enter the summer and try to understand how much of this is spreading into the summer, whether prevalence is really coming down.
4: Appreciate your time, as always. I'll see you on the other side of the holiday weekend. You have a good one with your family. Thanks a lot. All right, that's Dr. Scott Golly, the CNBC contributor, of course, the former head of the FDA. We're just getting started tonight. Coming up, one big city
5: mayor's plan to help restaurants get them outside for putting our lives on the line every single day. And getting through the crisis. A New York City subway conductor, in his own words. First, what this country looks like on the 144th day of the crisis. In the back area, I did put a uh, mask up. Here's my mask
9: right here.
5: And And I liked it very much. I actually, honestly, I think I look better in the mask. because It's an artificial closure. And now we're going to be able to open it up. Maybe even in the fourth quarter, in a few months, we're going to be back. All
4: right, that was the president, of course, speaking from a Ford plant. In Michigan, just a short time ago, here are the other headlines tonight on day 144 of the coronavirus crisis. President Trump says he thinks there will be another stimulus package to help Americans and support the U.S. economy. Facebook expecting half of its workforce to be working from home permanently in the next five to ten years. Alabama says all schools will be allowed to reopen on June 1st with guidelines. And some Las Vegas casinos began testing employees to prepare for a return to work. No date has been set for their casinos, though, to reopen. Well, tonight, a New York City subway conductor, Trammell Thompson, on the challenges he's facing underground. Here he is tonight in his own words.
10: I personally know about four or five um, co-workers who have passed. One of them I grew up with, my friend Rob. Um, conducted Cherry, see him all the time. We didn't have a chance to mourn. You can't really hug and console each other. So it's like a real traumatic um, situation. It's not like I don't want to go back. I want to go back. I love my job. I love um, moving the people from point A to point B safely. At the same time, I love my family. I love my health. When you have all these uh, government officials, you know the governor, the mayor, they don't thank us on the same level as they thank nurses, doctors, firefighters. We we want to be recognized, and not only through words with action, treat us like heroes. Make sure that heroes have the proper PPE. Make sure that heroes um, have the proper healthcare and getting the proper medical attention that we need. Make sure that us heroes are being compensated for putting our lives on the line every single day.
4: Want you to know we're pulling for you tonight, Trammell, who recently had the virus. He says he hopes to be back at work very soon. Well, keeping public transportation in operation is one of New York City's big challenges. In other cities, the focus tonight mainly on independent businesses. Quentin Lucas is the mayor of Kansas City, Missouri, where a bill was passed today allowing restaurants to expand onto sidewalks and parking lots. Mr. Mayor, I appreciate your time tonight. Thank you for being with us. It's good to be with you. Tell us how this is all going to work.
1: So, we saw that we needed more social distancing. We also saw that we needed to get our restaurants open again. so we came up with plans that throughout the entire city restaurants for permits shut down streets. those permits can last really until the end of the year, and they can also reuse parking lots, sidewalks, really trying to create a better pedestrian experience, but certainly a business one and We thought that was the best way to really
4: get our restaurant industry back up to work. sounds like a good idea. I know a number of other cities are talking about. The same thing how many restaurants do you think we're talking about
1: so we've heard from a lot of our restaurant leaders there are, are 94,000 people in our metro area of about 2.2 million who work in the restaurant industry itself so I would expect literally probably in Kansas City alone 500 to a thousand restaurants that will avail themselves of this opportunity and you know we hear all types of great things from our department of public health about what a positive step this is for making sure you really do maintain distancing it's one thing to say that tables have to be six feet apart but in a restaurant we'll still have people that are bumping into each other interacting we thought that this was the best way to make sure we kept that distance we had people outside and more than anything we were allowing restaurants to open and really have a chance to survive how's the
4: city been doing
1: You know, I think compared to a lot of other markets, we've been very fortunate. You know, I I just heard that subway worker describe his story here in Kansas City. We've only had 20 fatalities thus far. The metro area, about 120. Uh, we're in a position where we have done a good job of flattening the curve. But what that means is that we have to stay vigilant. Other metro areas, New Orleans, for example, is actually a little smaller than our metro, has had a lot more infections. So that's why we're taking it seriously so that we can get back to a point where we can be open again, see our world champion Kansas City Chiefs do any of that work. But we recognize to get there, we need to be smart. And this is one smart policy, one smart step. That helps us reopen.
4: Everybody's looking for the return of ball games. I can tell you that. Where are you in, in the reopening process in general?
1: So we have already introduced a reopening kind of set of guidelines starting on May 6th. We had a 10% capacity rule. It was known as 10-10-10, a few other standards relating to it. So we're at a point where almost every type of establishment is open or can deal with it. That's pretty severely small capacity. That's why we're trying to open up more public spaces. And I don't think we'll stop at restaurants, retail stores, art spaces, et cetera. This is the sort of thing where we're trying to say, how can we create more plaza-like experiences throughout our city to make sure that folks can really interact with business, retail, restaurants, et cetera, but also keep the distance they'll need. So I expect us to continue to increase those capacity thresholds well into the summer. And I would hope that, you know, we're a good paid place to make sure that we can be open by the fall.
4: Didn't realize Kansas City apparently has more boulevards than any city except for Paris.
1: You know, we have a lot of wonderful boulevards and fountains. There are spaces that really will lend themselves to creating opportunities like this one. And so, you know, we look forward to doing that. We look forward to giving the people of Kansas City something really to return to. And I think every American city, large and small, should consider this as an opportunity for their businesses and for their restaurants.
4: Yeah, I've been to your great city. I've eaten in your great restaurants, and I can't wait to get back. Mr. Mayor, I appreciate your time tonight. You'll be well.
1: Thank you so much.
4: All right. Here's what else is coming up tonight.
5: When we come right back, one top university's plan for the fall. See what teachers, students, and parents should expect. Plus, reimagining the American bar. We're back in two minutes.
4: Welcome back. Once again, a long line of CEOs lining up on CNBC throughout the day today to talk about their paths forward. Here's the view tonight from the top.
11: And our phase one, two is going very well. Uh, we're going to, we believe, start phase three at the beginning of next month. And at the end, at the end, we will know the results at the end of uh, at the end of the summer, probably in August. We store uh, human uh, data in a very large uh, study of 10,000 patients in the U.K., and another one of 30,000 patients in the United States.
1: I think this is a two-step process. We have a um, pandemic underway. It'll be a gradual return to the office, but, but I, I do think companies will be actively using their offices in the long term. Interest in gaming, gaming activity is up something like 40% uh, as a result of this pandemic.
4: We've tried to create the safest <laughs> environment in retail. And that's a big part of what's going to be so important going forward. Because I think American consumers and our guests, safety is going to be important. Well, ranked among the nation's top 20 universities, Rice University is one of the first colleges announcing plans to begin the fall semester on schedule in August. David Lebron is president of Rice University. Sir, good to have you on our show tonight. Welcome.
11: Great to be with you. Thank you.
4: Tell us how this is all going to work on that beautiful campus behind you.
11: Well, a lot depends on how the facts unfold over the summer. Uh, What we have announced is that we intend to be back in operation on the campus and are beginning to address a wide range of issues around that. And then, of course, over the summer as the circumstances evolve, and particularly in July, we'll make sure that that's a, a right thing to do, that it's safe for our faculty, students, and staff. But right now we feel reasonably optimistic about that.
4: Can you give me an idea of the kind of things that you all are discussing down there on exactly what you need to do to, to make this happen, if in fact you can?
11: Yeah, there are a huge number of things. Uh, how many people will have at a gathering or in a classroom, uh, physical distancing, for example, how we actually want to run our resident, what we call our residential colleges, uh, sanitation procedures. And then I think very important, of course, is testing procedures. And then uh, uh, should we find anybody who's infected, the right kind of quarantining pr- uh, procedures, and uh, contact tracing procedures so we're, we're looking at the entire range of things and, and really what our goal is to enter the fall as uh, flexibly as we can and so what we're saying for all courses where it's possible uh, we're really planning on what we call dual delivery and so the class will be available both on campus and simultaneously online
4: you mentioned testing do you anticipate testing as many students as you possibly can on campus
11: yeah our plan is to really test our entire population within a a fairly limited time period and we think that will be possible and we hope it will be possible uh, but we we expect given the size of our population a significant percentage of them and perhaps all of them will be tested
4: yeah you you have what seven thousand or so students is that right
11: Yeah, we have 7,000 students and 3,000 plus staff and visitors. So, um, you know, overall, the total population of the campus on any given day can be about 11,000.
4: If you're planning to test your your campus, what do you do about visitors to campus? Do they need to get tested as well to get onto campus?
11: No, we won't. We don't plan to test every visitor who comes on campus. But we will have uh, procedures and probably in the fall that will mean people will need to wear masks. Again, we'll have to make an assessment given the circumstances at the time, uh, require a certain kind of physical distancing requirements. And you know, we're, the current plan is to limit events to not more than 50. And again, we'll, we'll assess that as we get into the fall, whether that's still necessary or something even more stringent might be required. But we know how much our students and faculty would like to return to the campus. And if it's safe for us to do so and safe to have them on the campus, Uh, But we want to also have a system that's adaptable to people. And so if some of our students are, for example, can't get here, there are international students can't get their visas, or we have students who are immunocompromised, for example, uh, they will be able to learn remotely. And if faculty are also at risk, they also will be able to teach remotely.
4: That's interesting. I was going to ask you about uh, what you do with at-risk faculty. Could you envision a scenario where a faculty member who is at risk could be teaching remotely while the class is on campus?
11: Absolutely. And it it may be just a class sitting uh, in a room, appropriately uh, physically distanced, if those are the rules in effect at the time. And there might be a, a teaching assistant also available there. But, you know, being in a classroom is not solely about being with the professor in front of the classroom. It's also being with your fellow students in the classroom as well. And, you know, Zoom is great and we've all gotten used to it. Uh, but there are advantage of being in reasonable physical proximity with your fellow classmates as well.
4: President LeBron, I appreciate your time tonight. You be well.
11: OK, my pleasure. Thank you so much.
4: All right, you bet. That's David LeBron. He is the president of Rice University down in Houston. A lot more ahead tonight on the CNBC special report. When we come back,
5: a man advising
4: bars on how to prepare
5: themselves for social distancing and still making money. Before the break, what our world looks like on the 144th day of the coronavirus crisis.
4: It is going to be a big morning here on CNBC on Squawk Box tomorrow. Don't miss former vice president and the presumptive Democratic nominee Joe Biden. He is with us tomorrow at 8 a.m. Eastern Time. Well, he's known for saving failing bars from looming closure. Now he is using his knowledge to guide bars back into business. John Taffer is the creator, executive producer and the host of Bar Rescue. He joins us now. John, it's good to see you tonight. Great to be here, Scott. Are we going to be able to do what you're doing again, sitting right there in front of a
12: bar? Well, this is my home bar, but the answer is yes. You know, first of all, I think medically we'll catch up to the situation. But there's changes that we need to make, certainly. Spacing is the key one, but it's more than that. Let's think about this for a moment. How does a bartender serve a drink to someone? Well, we have to use disposable glassware. So that creates a cost and a different procedure. Let's say, Scott, you finish your drink. I can't pick up the glass and throw it away. Then I have to change my gloves or wash my hands. So touching any vessel that goes in back and forth between a customer and a bartender or the server becomes a major issue. I can hold a receptacle. You can drop it in a receptacle but every step of our process has to start to change. When we look at procedures, we can get past this medically. And I believe we will. We're starting to see that surfaces don't transfer the disease as much. But I want to remind people that the bar business and the restaurant business has dealt with bacteria since our inception. So we know how to clean surfaces. We know that we're supposed to wash our hands. We know the right chemicals to use and processes to use. So with some shifts in basic sanitation procedures within our restaurants, mats, PPEs and such, I think as an industry we're equipped to do this well.
4: You know, one of the things though about going to a bar, John, is is the atmosphere you find when you get there, whether you're with family or friends or even meeting strangers, having a conversation with the bartender. Is that going to change forever?
12: Sure, it will. I mean, a lot of the bars you would go to, Scott, is because they're relevant. They're packed. There's an energy level to them. When you go to an empty bar, you don't feel very relevant. So, so that's not the kind of environment you would go to. But there's a relativity here. There's no competitive bar that's going to have that energy level either. But at the end of the day, you can make a drink at home, Scott, the same as I can make it in a bar. The issue is I do have to provide some experiential element to the experience to get you back inside. Bars can't survive on a delivery business, and bars are very different than restaurants. And I don't like it when we're bunched together. Restaurants have meal periods. Many bars don't. So restaurants have inherent revenue opportunities during each hour of the day. The bar typically makes 70% of its revenues 16 hours a week, Friday nights, Saturday nights, during football, during a ladies' night or a particular promotion. Those 16 hours are packed with customers. So we can't spread the business as easily as a restaurant can. That means we're more challenged.
4: How do you convince people to show up? We've been dealing with that issue In the restaurant stories that we've discussed, as more and more states reopen, you can reopen whatever you want. If they don't show up, John, you have a problem. How do we convince people it's okay to come to a bar?
12: Well, I I sort of cut it up in thirds, Scott. I think the first third of our population is going to come out pretty quickly. They tend to be a younger demographic. You know, they're a little fearless, if you will. So they'll come out first. I think the second third of the population is a little more reserved. And I think they're gonna wait a few weeks and see what happens. They're gonna to wanna to see not only restaurants and retailers opt, operate in safe ways, they're gonna see the way customers operate. So for example, Scott, if you drove by a restaurant that was open and there's a crowd of customers standing in front and they're not wearing masks and they're standing in close proximity of each other, are you gonna go into that restaurant? No. So the actions of the customers are going to determine the success of the restaurant, too. So that second third is going to watch what happens, and then they'll come. What worries me is the third third. That's what I call the certain third. They're not coming out until there's a vaccine, or they're certain that they're safe. But that tends to be an older demo, a more affluent demo. So that challenges luxury dining. That challenges all sorts of luxury and upscale products. So there's a demographic angle to this, too.
4: We appreciate your time. As always, nice collection of spirits behind you. John Taffer. We'll talk to you again soon. (laughs) Take care, Scott. All right. You as well. Up next, what hospitals are doing to get their business models back on track. Plus saluting America's restaurants as we do every night. Welcome back. The months of COVID patients rushing to hospitals is thankfully leveling off, and that allows for medical centers to start reopening the rest of their wings for other kinds of surgeries, many of which bring in much needed money. Here's Bertha Coombs.
9: At Ochsner Health System in New Orleans, getting staff back online to restart elective surgery and diagnostic procedures has been the easy part of reopening. The big challenge has been getting patients ready to return. Now every patient and visitor has their temperature taken, is screened for symptoms, and given a mask at the door. And treatment areas are all spaced for social distancing.
8: I think because of that, we're seeing more folks than we anticipated coming back sooner for their medical care.
9: Usher's surgical and outpatient volumes rebounded this week to about 60 percent of what they were a year ago. The CEOs of for-profit health systems HCA and Tenet Healthcare report a similar bounce back. But they're all worried about what happens after the backlog of procedures being rescheduled.
8: Do we continue to see people seek services? Um, How does that ramp up over the next several weeks? You know, we're not sure exactly what that looks like. Nobody is.
9: The concern? Specialists refer patients for diagnostics and surgery are also coming back at reduced capacity because of new safety precautions, so the pipeline of new patients being scheduled is slower.
12: Scheduling uh, is going to have to be done very carefully, uh, more spacing between procedures and uh, imaging.
9: The ongoing challenge now for doctors and hospitals right. is to not only say stress not? that it's safe to come back, but that putting off care carries its own risk to patients' health. Bertha Coombs, CNBC.
4: As you know, each night we're giving a shout out to restaurants operating during this crisis. You can tweet me at Scott Wapner, CNBC, use the hashtag thanks for the grub with the name and the town and your favorite restaurant. And you can also send us a picture tonight. We shout out the Piccola Italia in Ocean Township, New Jersey. Petacolis in Dallas, Texas. The Antelope Club in Indianapolis, Indiana. Creekside in Brecksville, Ohio. And the Don Jose Mexican Restaurant down in Sebring, Florida. We appreciate all that all of you are doing to keep us fed in this crisis. And we are thinking and rooting for all of you. On day 144 of the crisis, here are the latest headlines tonight. President Trump says he thinks there will be another stimulus package. Confirmed cases of the virus now topping five million worldwide and nearly two and a half million more Americans filed for unemployment last week, making it more than 38 million in the nine weeks since state lockdowns started. Just astounding numbers for all of us here tonight at CNBC. I'm Scott Wapner. Please be well. I'll see you on the halftime report tomorrow at 12 noon Eastern. For now, Shark Tank is next.